Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Sean. How's it going? I'm doing well, doing well. I know we're both very excited to be interviewing our guest today, um, Dr. David Payat. Uh, David is the president of the Ophthalmology Foundation. He has also worn many, many hats um, over time, and we're going to dive into some of those. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be talking with uh, friends of friends in Montreal. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. We were discussing this before the podcast. We have some, uh, some mutual friends. So uh, it's, it's a small world in, um, in the ophthalmology space for sure. Um, so I, I thought we could start off with uh, something that came up in an interview that I saw you give um, in the past in doing some research for this conversation. Um, and you had pointed out that strategy you know, in business or for a company in general is often about what the company is deciding that it's not going to do versus what it's going to do. I was hoping maybe you could just elaborate on that. Um, and if you have any uh, examples of, of that through your time um, in industry as well. Sure. Um, well, I think this applies, as you kind of uh, intimated, not just to industry, but it can apply to any organization. It could even be, in theory, your local church, or it could be a local ophthalmology society or a patient action group. And I think the process of um, deciding what not to do, if you like eliminating options, really forces um, a discussion amongst the leadership of any group. What are we going to do? You know, what is the core? And as a result of all of that, you can really draw up a very short list of priorities and focus on them. And for whatever reason, over the years, I've kind of come up with the magic number of five and say, you know, if you have more than five priorities, um, most people can't even remember what they are after the number five. And, uh, and so talking about companies that, uh, that you've been uh, the leader on, uh, I believe the first time that you've been involved in, in the ophthalmological community was through your position as the CEO of Allergan. Uh, so how did you, how did you get there? And, and, and I, I, I believe that like, you are the main res person responsible for, for the turnaround the company. So if you could just like give us a bit of a color on like how, how did you end up there and, and how it was like uh, your, your role at CEO, like on, on, on that transformation. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, I'm a citizen of the world. Um, I've lived in 10 countries, worked in seven, uh, some more than once. I have to say, I've always loved Canada and never had the chance to work in Canada, but I've had many visits. So when I say work, that means, you know, you actually go to work every single day in the year in that country. Um, so how I got to Allergan was after... Uh, 17 years at Novartis, um, leading the nutrition division at the very end. And I suppose that put me into uh, the position that I could take on a fairly large, complicated business like Allergan. So I arrived there quite a time ago now, it was 1998. And what made it even more interesting was that I was only um, the third CEO in uh, year number 49, uh, our founder, Gavin Herbert, 
having run the company for almost, well, over 40 years. So when I came to Allergan, um, I used to joke later on and say, you know, I'm not very good at finding problems um, because the few that exist, we were able to put out of the way very, very quickly. And in its simplicity, it was uh, all about focus. And I'll talk about that in a second. But before we really drew up a focus strategy, um, first I decided that we needed to save some money. Um, there was a need for some cost reduction, more efficiency. And uh, I like to joke, you know, across the world and well known in Canada that being a Scotsman, uh, people know that when I say, hey, uh, Bruno and Sean, we need to save a wee bit of money. Most people think, "Uh oh, we better get ready. And in my case, of course, I was um, trained by the Swiss and I was even educated in the Netherlands. So I'm kind of a, a gene modified Scotsman. And so we did that and the money that was saved, most of it was plowed back into R&D, which really drove um, a whole series of new and exciting products. And uh, it was a global company. Uh, so we were able to launch these products across the world. And probably the most famous ones were Botox, uh, which started in really blepharospasm and strabismus. And, uh, you know, very, very small at the outset and uh, isn't just all about wrinkles and aesthetics, but also, you know, very serious therapeutic conditions, dystonias, chronic daily migraine, uh, things like that. And then coming home to ophthalmology, uh, we launched Limigan for glaucoma and Restasis for dry eye, which I'm pleased to say is available in Canada. So that was the story. And uh, the numbers were really quite uh, remarkable in the sense that um, talking efficiency, when I started, the revenues were about 1.1 billion US dollars in sales with 6,000 employees. And 17 years later, it was 7 billion US dollars in sales and 10,000 employees. So of course you don't need an MBA to work out that sufficiency big time. Um, and it was really getting people focused and, and sometimes outsourcing uh, lower value added activities. So you maybe uh, have a question here or there where you'd like to dig deeper on some of the things that I uh, put up there. Yes, for sure. For sure. I have a lot of questions, but we'll, we'll, we'll pick and choose our, pick and choose uh, where we're going to go with this. But, um, you know, you seem to have a very, you know, level head and, and an ability to, to simplify things, you know, just from when you're talking before about, you know, figuring out what organizations are not going to do. Um, and in essence, figuring out what they're going to excel at because they're, they're focusing on these things. What are some of the I guess these are probably some lessons that you took from Novartis to Allergan, but are there lessons during your time at Allergan that you would say, um, you know, helped you grow and, and learn and were, I guess, in your time there, you were there for 17 years. Did you have anybody who you might call a mentor or uh, whether officially or unofficially, you know, at, while you're at the helm of, uh, of a company like that? Yeah, well, maybe picking up where you started, um, I absolutely believe in keeping things as simple as possible. Um, for when, particularly when you have um, 
thousands of employees in an organization, people really like to know, what do you expect from me? And if you can give them a real short list, and then that list remains constant and the same for a long period of time, people feel kind of safe, you know, that you're not asking them to jump out of the windows. And, you know, that can be okay if it's only two feet off the ground and the ground soft. But of course, if it's uh, 20 feet, that's uh, really too much. And I think, you know, you can hear in that that I also believe uh, a lot in the power of repetition because people understand like this is constant and you're really serious about it. I think um, before I answer the mentor question, um, I think also not just myself, but the whole company at the top, we spent an enormous amount of time with our customers and asking them, what are we doing well? What are we missing? Are the things we need to improve upon? And of course, you can get a whole scattergun of answers and um, you have to weed through, you know, what is at the periphery where one particular physician may have had a bad experience or the opposite of wonderful but unrepeatable experience with the company, but you start seeing central themes. And uh, that's the way that you can anticipate changes in the marketplace, um, you know, the, the much uh, fabled uh, unmet needs of patients. But then, you know, that's the easy part. How do you then meet those needs? In terms of mentors, I would like to think that um, I really saw our board of directors, not only as a body to um, monitor officially um, the performance of the company, but also as a source of both formal advice, but then informal advice. And I'm very proud that I inherited a tremendous board. Um, it was one of the things that attracted me when I left Novartis to Allergan. And it very much stayed that way. Um, some people were super scientists, others were more in the commercial field, others just had great business sense. So, uh, um, and I'll probably come back to management in a minute, but I, I don't want to go on for too long, otherwise it turns into a bit of a diatribe versus uh, uh, the kind of conversation that we aim to set up. Uh, please dive into management. I would, I would love to hear your comments on management. So please, yeah. by, by all means, by all means. Well, yeah. I, have, I have a question on management. Sure. And maybe, maybe we can guide that, uh, that conversation. And, and so you mentioned that uh, it's important to keep it simple in terms of the priorities of the company, of, of a company, right? And uh, you, you, you've run like different companies. So like I, I assume that different companies will have different priorities, but is there any priority that it's common to, to, to any company and that could serve as an advice for a person on the capital seat of a, of a given organization? Well, the one I would always start with is um, innovation. And unfortunately, you know, every company um, will claim that they're innovative in some way. But then if you're really critical, you could question whether that's really true or not. And I think the real measuring stick is you know, what has the, been the cadence of new product introductions, which of course is relative to size, right? Where, you know, if uh, take Johnson Johnson as a, really a giant company, you know, if they only brought out two or three products a year, they would be in enormous trouble. Whereas if you were in a small 
uh, say, a company that's just started up in Canada and is looking to go overseas, then maybe um, having a product every two or three years would be absolutely fine. Um, so I always start with innovation. And then it's, uh, do you have enough resources in terms of R&D? Or do you actually have to buy the products from another company in terms of do you buy the company or do you get a license? There's many ways of acquiring and getting access uh, to innovation. And how you do it is very dependent on the starting point, the strategic starting point. And also, does the company have access to money? Um, or is this just a pipe dream? And sometimes you just need to bootstrap things, you know, piece by piece um, from humble beginnings uh, upwards. And uh, you, maybe besides a managerial role as a CEO, you're, you're also, uh, and you've been a, a, a board member for many organizations. And uh, what do you think you, you, you brought to them that wasn't there before? Like, in other words, like, I mean, what could you see was lacking like, I mean, before your arrival? Yeah, well, I think um, very early on, I was fortunate that um, I got invited to be an external board member of other companies. Uh, one was actually an industrial product. It was uh, labels, um, adhesive labels. It's not 3M, surprisingly enough. It's called Avery Dennison. Uh, based in uh, Los Angeles. And that was a good example where I didn't really at the beginning know very much about that industry, but you bring a, an external perspective of, uh, and, and sometimes you're able to ask the dumb questions, um, you know, why does the industry work this way? And sometimes the answer is, well, it was always that way. And uh, as you think more, maybe that's the catalyst for if you like producing a better way to produce mousetraps, you know, to be incredibly simplistic. So I think that's one part. If I then morph into, um, you know, what I think I can contribute to um, charitable organizations, i.e. not-for-profits, that's a very different setup because clearly you're not there to make money. Uh, you might be there to fundraise. And because it's voluntary, um, you really need to be very considerate of everybody uh, because, you know, if they don't like the atmosphere, you know, they can pick up uh, sticks or shut their briefcase and go somewhere else. So I would like to think that, and this applies to industrial organizations too, that in its essence, um, I like to try and establish consensus. So I might be quite critical. People say that I tend to put my finger on the weakest spot and uh, sometimes the neuralgic spot. But as long as what it, it is done in a kind um, and constructive collegial way, most people then see the sincerity isn't just to, um, if you like, put the, the spotlight on whatever the giant problem is, but actually, okay, we've done that now. And then how do we make this better? And that can lead to a lot of engagement, um, it can lead to a lot of energy and then a desire to uh, say, okay, we've established the goals. Now let's really put our energy into making these dreams happen. And uh, that's a great experience for everybody where 
you say, well, thank goodness I'm working in this effort because I feel really rewarded, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the week. So I think as you're talking, it's uh, the simplicity of, of, or I should say the ability to boil their essence and, and to, uh, you know, what's important, what's not important. I feel like is a, it seems so simple, but I feel like it's a superpower that you have. There's, there's so many people who are in leadership positions. Um, and admittedly, I've been there too, where, uh, you know, you can see that you can go in a hundred different directions, you know, and then give people, uh, you know, here's your hundred list of priorities, but sometimes just boiling that down, I guess, and <laughs> making it foolproof in, in terms of uh, the expectations is, it seems to be um, something that runs as a common thread through what you're saying. I, the, think, the other, uh, I think the other common thread, which uh, makes the bridge to people, and, and this could be um, the management uh, question that we touched upon, or it could be the composition of the board of trustees of a not-for-profit organization. And so I think one of the constancies at Allergan was just having great people and, um, and strong people, charismatic people at the top, of course, um, are a beacon or a lighthouse for people further down. And, you know, people then aspire, you know, to move up the ranks and, you know, some people will make it, you know, to the very top. Or if we then pivot over to a not-for-profit organization, and I'm sure we'll talk shortly about the Ophthalmology Foundation, um, you know, that was a very constant, a very uh, conscious effort at the beginning to say, okay, with a white sheet of paper, knowing the best ophthalmologists in the world who care about education in lower and middle income countries, who would they be? That was the, the genesis of setting up the organization. Well, I just want to continue right on that theme, right? Um, just it rolls right into my next couple of questions. And, and it's just the genesis of the Ophthalmology Foundation. Um, and you know, why? What was the impetus to create this and to spearhead this and to bring together so many you know, passionate leaders in the space, uh, from passionate leaders with a common interest, but very diverse, uh, at least uh, ge geographically diverse. Um, and, you know, going to your superpower that I pointed out of being able to clearly communicate expectations and goals. Um, what, you know, what does the Ophthalmology Foundation have as short-term and or long-term goals? Yeah, very good. Yeah, well, I should definitely say a few words about uh, the history. So really the predecessor or, or organization to the Ophthalmology Foundation was the International Council of Ophthalmology Foundation and often shortened as ICO and then ICO Foundation. So the history of that is the ICO has been around for well over a century and it's a, actually a Swiss-based association, whereas the ICO Foundation was set up by Bruce Spivey um, and Brad Stratzma, both very famous ophthalmologists in Los Angeles and San Francisco back in 2002. And of course, for North Americans, you'd say instantly, well, that makes sense because you want a not-for-profit in this country, the US, known as a 5013C, so that donors can deduct the donation fully from their personal income tax. So that's how things started. And it moved along pretty well for 
um, you know, close to 20 years. And then sometimes, you know, one gets divergence in priorities and approach in leadership. And uh, it reached a point where we decided and the ICO Foundation uh, board was very minor overlap with the ICO in Switzerland. And we decided finally it was just best to split off. And so we split off at the end of 2020, um, naturally with some hesitation, because when you start something brand new, um, you always have in the back of your head the, the famous, I wonder how successful or, my God, unsuccessful we might be. Um, and so as we discussed, where we started was the white sheet of paper. And we said, okay, who would be the best people in the world? And first of all, starting with the physicians, um, and not just North America, but Latin America, Europe, Asia Pacific, Australia, um, who would they be? And uh, I'm really pleased to say that between um, my relationships and those of Bruce Bivey and Jim Mazo, who had worked for me at Allergan for quite a while and then became uh, CEO of a spin-off company that then became Johnson Johnson Vision. And, and later he went on to be CEO of uh, Carl Zeiss Meditech, the German company. So those are the three. And pretty much, um, I would say of all the people we approached, I would say our failure rate was just a couple of people. Um, is pretty much universal, great, we want to be involved. And even those that declined, it wasn't due to us. It was, you know, we're just so busy, busy. We just couldn't, I couldn't take on another job. So that's where we started. Um, a great group of physicians supplemented by the CEOs of the leading eye care companies. And uh, then we literally got to work um, in terms of, you know, what our mission should be. So let me pause there because there may be a follow-up and then I'll go into what on earth are we doing? No, I think yeah. that, you know, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bruno, go ahead. No, no, finish, finish your, your, your turn of thought there. I can jump in at. <laughs> sure, no, so, um, yeah, we're going to talk about the mission. Um, I guess, was it challenging to, to, to try to narrow down this? Because uh, I imagine there's a lot of ophthalmologists who um, maybe, I say just ophthalmologists, but leaders in the space who uh, could have made the cut um, that that didn't, I guess. And, you know, how that process, uh, was it challenging to identify those people? Um, you know, with the converse, what was the conversation like? Was it just like, hey, you know, you know me, I know you. I think we're going to we're going to do this and and uh, we're going to do this differently. Um, so just curious on those two things. So, so the challenge of uh, defining who, who you're going to invite and then uh, and who you're working to invite, I guess, for that matter, going back to just the strategy at the beginning and, uh, and maybe what those conversations look like if they were as simple as you make them sound. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, um, that was probably very much at the beginning a three-way conversation between what today is, you know, the officer group, uh, myself, Bruce Bivey and Jim Meso. And really our criteria was bring across a certain number of people who have knowledge of the past and that being the history of the ICO foundation, but then very determinedly bring in people that had historically very little relationship with ICO 
um, in Switzerland or the ICO Foundation in uh, the United States. That was the element of we really want fresh thinking. And then the next approach was, well, on the industry side, a little simpler because, um, you know, the, the, the major players are pretty clear. You know, it's Alcon, Allergan, Zeiss, J&J, um, and then also some representation of the up and coming companies, which is also very important. Um, and then on the physician side, uh, we wanted to make sure that we really had, as you remarked, um, Sean, you know, great geographic spread. Um, so uh, across the world and, and also good um, diversity in terms of uh, gender and country of origin. And so what we've ended up with is probably a little bit North America intense. Um, I think that's because of, you know, that's where we are. We're here in the US and uh, whether one likes it or not, the US is always the major place for raising money. But then we have great representation from Latin America, um, from Europe, uh, Asia Pacific and Australia and Africa, because clearly um, having three board members who are African ophthalmologists always keeps us honest in terms of what product, what service are we really trying to deliver to those people who need it most in terms of education. And, you know, like this, I was actually a recipient of one of those like ICO fellowships in the beginning of my career. So I can give a first person testament on how much a relatively modest uh, amount can, can have a huge impact in, in the career of a young professional. Absolutely. So that probably is a good bridge to uh, go to, you know, what are we doing um, in this new foundation? Um, I'll come back to the fellowships in a second, but I think um, you can imagine in our conversation, um, whilst I talked about simplicity, um, really in my essence, I suppose I'm a marketing kind of guy. Um, you know, you, you could say it kind of worked, you know, Botox, rather famous brand these days. Um, and I'm a great believer in really, really discussing um, what is known in industry as USP, unique selling proposition, i.e. what makes our product, our service, hopefully pretty different than that offered by others. And in our case, you could say, well, sure, there's other organizations around that also aim to educate ophthalmologists in lower and middle income countries. But probably the biggest difference would be they're much more focused on the what, i.e. the formal training of acquiring medical knowledge and then acquiring uh, clinical expertise on how to improve how they um, conduct, whether it's surgery or um, a diagnostic of a condition. So that kind of makes sense. You know, you can think of uh, going to uh, Latin America, thinking of you, Bruno, um, you know, we're very involved with the Pan American Association of Ophthalmology and uh, we, we collaborate. Um, we recently drew up a memorandum of understanding with them and there's so much work to do. It's not a case of how do we uh, both go at the same thing, but how do we do some things together and then other things very consciously, you take care of that corner, we'll take care of the other corner 
because there's so much work to do. So what are we doing? It's not the what. And you know, another great repository of information would be the American Academy of Ophthalmology's so-called ONE network. This is the ophthalmic network of education. And if you're a member of the American Academy, including you can be a Canadian member, uh, you have full access. But these days, probably over half of all of that knowledge base is actually available to the public outside the firewall. So this is examples of how do you acquire formal knowledge, uh, fact-based learning. So what we're doing is not the what, it's the how. And really the focus of our courses is providing training, live opportunities to how do you improve your ability to actually train other ophthalmologists, educate ophthalmologists as a thought leader, um, as a residency program director, as an example, or even a chair of uh, an institute of ophthalmology somewhere in the world. So that's backing up the real central theme is in the past we called it train or teach the trainer. Um, and it's all about how to educate better. And in a second, um, we'll, I'm sure, talk about the fellowships because I'm very passionate about that as well. And back to management of foundation specifically. Uh, so there is perennial challenge of raising funds and you mentioned already like the, another challenge of like, I mean, finding the right people to, to run it. Is there any other particular challenge that it might not be so obvious for an outsider? Well, as I kind of shared uh, a while back, um, when we set up the new organization, uh, the first little worry you have in the back of your head is, um, are people going to stick with us? And when you hit a reset button, uh, there's always a great opportunity for everybody to say, um, I'm just going to reassess. So I'm really delighted that all our um, sponsors of the past um, have repeated. Um, I think there's only currently two and um, you know that's early days because maybe we just offered the wrong product to them. So in, in its essence, um, really very universal support for the new foundation. So happily, we have funds. Um, I mean, one can always have more, but certainly sufficient funds to deliver the mission that we established. And that is, you know, training physicians how to be better teachers and better trainers. And we felt sufficiently confident that, in fact, we've already started a new program that never existed before. And that is um, a mentorship program, one-on-one. -on -one. And this can be at all levels. You know, it can be somebody who's still mid-career uh, mentoring a resident, or it could even be a department chair um, mentoring a fellow department chair in a faraway country. Uh, and we're already thinking about uh, mounting um, a leadership training course that could be quite different than some of the other products that already exist in the world. Uh, so, so Dave, I guess, like, as we were talking about uh, the foundations you've been involved on, and uh, you seem to be particularly passionate about uh, the fellowships that I offer, like, through those foundations. Do, do you like to talk a bit more about those? Yeah, well, um, Bruno, I was so delighted to hear that you were 
um, a recipient of a ICO fellowship. And uh, these have existed um, for, for close to 20 years now. And as part of this um, separation from the ICO, um, our, our colleagues who administered the ICO fellowships, and it was really a group of people um, around Munich, um, and they even set up their own uh, International Ophthalmology Fellows Foundation back in about 2007. Um, and the reason for that was just the same as I described over here. It was a vehicle for German and other European donors uh, to donate in a tax efficient manner. So coming back to the present, the same group decided when they heard about the Ophthalmology Foundation that they would like to join forces with us. And so um, that has happened. Um, we have the same people in place and, and now the same fellowships are called the IOFF fellowships or Ophthalmology Foundation fellowships. And all the support from North America, we funnel into the, the German group as administrators. And then they have continued to raise funds from their historical sources. So the great news is uh, for 2022, assuming people can actually travel, um, we will be able to offer um, around about 75 uh, fellowships, uh, the so-called three-month fellowships that will look and feel very much like what you personally enjoyed, Bruno, in the past. And, and you may have a follow-up given that you're the real expert on this matter. And please don't ask me questions that even I don't know the answer. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think it was 2005 or 2006. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, it wasn't much by all means, but like, you know, being an ophthalmologist, like recently graduated from Latin America, like, I mean, that definitely helped, you know, like, I mean, for me to get my training abroad. And as I mentioned previously, you know, like, I mean, an amount that for, for most people late in their career wouldn't, wouldn't move a needle for, for someone in the beginning, it, it can really be like, I mean, uh, uh, like a, a life changer, you know, in a way, right? Because it enables you to set your career in a path that, that you wouldn't be able otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the guardrails around it is that um, we don't accept um, applicants over 40 years of age. And as you can imagine, in the normal course, um, an absolute uh, stipulation that the fellow returns to their country of origin so that we're not just creating, you know, the brain drain. And, uh, you know, sometimes, of course, people will come back later on, but that's okay. Um, that's all part of uh, natural uh, career development across the globe. I like how you, well, you and the foundation as a whole is focused on education, which I think is certainly, you know, a unique, uh, unique, I forget how you framed this earlier, but a unique value proposition or how you're positioning your offering, because it seems to be like a the lead domino, right? It, it said, if you focus on training the people who are going to train others, or educating the people um, at the top so that that can trickle down, you seem to get a um, you know a compound effect uh, for the for the investment, whether it be financial or time. You know, are there other organizations uh, outside of fundraising, or or, or I shouldn't say fundraising, but uh, outside of uh, you know philanthropic efforts in ophthalmology that you think focus on the same, whether they're in other fields of medicine or just in businesses, have you seen that elsewhere? And now that 
mentality of, uh, you know, training the trainers has trickled over and or influenced how the ophthalmology foundation functions? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll answer it almost from an industry perspective that um, certainly at Allergan and we weren't unique. Um, we very much um, believed in improving the skills of our customers. And so really in its essence, it's education. Um, because even if you give somebody, um, you know, a bottle of um, glaucoma drops, you'd say, well, that's pretty simple. Just uh, tell somebody how to instill this in the patient's eye. But how you use that product and in concert with other, um, whether it's pharmacological agents or surgical intervention is really, really important. And of course, once you get into, say, phacoemulsification machines for cataract, then by definition, you have to have very intensive training uh, at the beginning. And usually it's the, the surgical representative standing shoulder to shoulder with the surgeon in the OR that makes it happen. But I think there's also other organizations, one that I'm also deeply involved with, Orbis. Um, you may know of the Flying Eye Hospital, which has been its icon for, you know, 30 years. Um, but more and more, uh, Orbis is not just about this hospital that effectively is a training hospital. Um, it, it lands and the whole goal is to train the local ophthalmologists, particularly to do difficult cases. But they also have a wonderful product called CyberSight, which is really taken off during the pandemic because this is a setup where you can be conducting um, an ophthalmic procedure in say Rwanda and uh, you can have a surgeon from Moorfields in London and a surgeon from uh, McGill in Montreal assisting online uh, and so you could imagine uh, with the power of technology uh, what can be done in terms of the how part of education and passing on what's known as the the surgical pearls no and that's uh no that's interesting i wasn't familiar with the organization so that's uh that's certainly interesting um you know we've talked about people who are ophthalmologists or industry professionals you know getting involved with the ophthalmology foundation you know leadership positions and otherwise um how does everybody else get involved you know i mean what you're doing i think uh, and you, with the collective view, uh, I think what resonates with a lot of people who, you know, have the question, myself included, saying, how does somebody, average, average Joe, uh, average Bruno, average Sean, average uh, whoever is listening to this podcast, um, regardless of level of, um, you know, academic or professional experience, get involved in, in some way? And that's probably a uh, multiple levels to that, uh, to that question and answer. But I was hoping you can just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly for our audience, uh, primarily in Canada, um, if this sounds interesting, um, please, you know, check out our ophthalmologyfoundation.org website. Or if you're interested in um, the fellowships, uh, it will click through, but you can go direct to ioff.org. And if there's something there that interests you as a volunteer, particularly in participating in what we call an education consortium, then please send us an email. And I would ask that to go to our executive director, Christine Graham, 
So that's C and then Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M at ophthalmologyfoundation.org. And uh, that group is partly people who are represented on the board of trustees, but then as you imagine in any healthy organization, whilst the board of trustees is still pretty large, you know, it's 35 people, um, there's an even bigger uh, group of volunteers underneath it and one with really hugely diverse geography. And uh, we'd love to have uh, more volunteers from Canada. My, my second uh, really hope would be going back to the discussion on the fellowships. And historically, um, the hosts, um, meaning those institutions that receive fellows from elsewhere, have been particularly um, focused on Germany, given where it started, uh, the UK because of English, and the United States. And uh, for whatever reason, we haven't had hosts in from Canada in the past. Uh, you're not unique, by the way, um, being Scottish, and, and my brother is actually a Scottish ophthalmologist. I kind of said, hey, you know, we have a gap. And so I'm really pleased to say soon there will be a host in Scotland. So those would be my two kind of follow-ups. One would be, if you're interested to be a volunteer, please look on the website. And second, um, if you know a chair of ophthalmology um, in one of the academic medical centers in Canada, um, please introduce us to him or her, and we'd love to take, take that further. Funding, uh, things are pretty good. We probably are more likely to reach out to the companies because we know pretty much who everybody is. That, uh, that's great information. And then uh, we, we're definitely going to try to use our network to reach out to potential hosts like for, for people that kind of will be, will be our modest way of giving back. Uh, so you, you're, I mean, you, you're very far in your career. You've accomplished like, I mean, more than like a normal person could ever imagine. And it would be natural to understand that the impulse of someone to kind of like stop you know like i mean retire or whatever you call it you know like i'll just like i mean take it easy and it doesn't seem that you you're you're any close to slowing down so uh what is your motivation to keep on going like after you've accomplished so much yeah that's a good one well um i kind of uh, wondered when i stepped down from being ceo of allergan about five years ago what it'd be like and so now my wife likes to tease me that um i think currently i have 10 part-time jobs, of which uh, being president of the Ophthalmology Foundation is just one. And I think really underneath it is a desire to forever keep learning, whether it's a, a new field or new people or new insights. And I love new technology. Um, I'm sure you know this one. Somebody just showed and demoed me a Microsoft app called Seeing AI, uh, as in artificial intelligence, where you just take a photograph of even a fairly complicated page. And then five seconds later, a voice starts reading uh, the text. And of course, if you're blind or low vision, what a super app and it's free. You know, another one would be an organization I work with in London called Peak Vision, P-E-E-K, that basically uses a smartphone to do um, blindness assessments in 
very, very remote places, you know, from Zimbabwe to Pakistan. And it's a real potentiator of how do you make um, triaging of patients in very, very remote places more efficient. But I think bringing it back, the thing that really motivates me is to say, you know, I had the privilege of <clears throat> being the CEO of an eye care company for, you know, close to 20 years. So I've accumulated a huge amount of knowledge. And I know pretty much the ophthalmologists of the world. Um, <clears throat> some who are more on the academic side, some people who just want to help um, education in um, low-income countries. And, and finally, I had the fortune of making a lot of money. So applying this knowledge and then also personally funding uh, projects in certain places is, is really rewarding. And uh, the one we are spending most of, this is my wife and I, uh, of our personal time actually is with Orbis um, in Zambia. And when people ask, what are you trying to do? Uh, we say we want to double the number of ophthalmologists in Zambia. So over here, people would think, my goodness, that must be an enormous task. But in fact, the starting point for a 17 million population country was only 28 ophthalmologists. And just think of that. Um, I'm sure there's uh, more ophthalmologists just in the townships of Eastern Canada uh, than the whole country. Uh, and you can imagine changing that uh, is really, really personally rewarding. rewarding. And imagining, you know, how many people will maintain their sight um, due to some pretty simple procedures. I think it's a powerful message. Um, you know, it seems that what uh, what drives you, you have a very strong business background, of course, and have led a, um, you know, a global organization. But it just seems that the, the core of what you're doing uh, and what motivates you and drives you to keep going forward is leveraging everything that you've learned, the connections you've made, and otherwise to, you know, continue doing good and bringing that to uh, communities and or, uh, locations that don't have the same privileges as we maybe have enjoyed in, in the Western world. So I yeah, think that's, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I actually have a good role model because my younger brother, and of course in families, it, we can always have fun, right? Because he's seven years younger than me. And uh, he's an ophthalmologist. And I would say the greatest thing he did in his career was uh, he went to St. John's Eye Hospital in the 80s in Jerusalem and used to operate in Gaza once a week. But that wasn't enough for him. After that, he worked in Cambodia immediately after Pol Pot, reestablishing the first eye care hospital in the whole country and stayed for nine years. So uh, some people talk about big ideas and some people just go do it. No, for sure. For sure. I think you, 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 you embody the latter. And there's been a few, uh, a few guests on the podcast previously who are um, good friends of Bruno and I. One is uh, Ruben Spelfort, who has uh, done a lot of that as well. Um, another one I'd like to mention is Carlos Gizada, a, a good friend who is a surgeon, works in industry, and continues to uh, make trips back to Mexico to um, help people in his hometown, um, despite having... <laughs> no time to do that. So I just think that there's, there's a lot of uh, great people doing great things and you, uh, you certainly show a lot of leadership in that space. So um, David, anything that you'd want to um, leave with the audience as we wrap up any 
parting words, uh, suggestions uh, related to the foundation or, or otherwise that, uh, that you'd like to share? Well, I think um, of all the medical specialties I've worked with, um, I find ophthalmology probably the most rewarding because with pretty limited um, equipment and means, um, meaning you, the ophthalmologist, because I'm not an ophthalmologist, you can make a tremendous difference in the world. And uh, if you'd like to really multiply um, your impact, which is, I think, what most people want to do, um, please consider getting involved with us. Oh, that's great. And we'll certainly put uh, uh, links in the show notes of this episode to uh, the Ophthalmology Foundation resources uh, that you mentioned. So, David, it's it's truly been a pleasure. Um, I thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and share your wisdom stories uh, and information with the audience and, and Bruno and I. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Dave. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.